not. My name is Rob Stennett. I'm one of the pastors here. But it's Father's Day, and I'm going to actually tell you my story of the journey of learning that I was a dad. It was a Tuesday night, and uh, my wife Sarah is right up there, and uh, she handed me a present on a Tuesday night. And the only time I think that I'd ever got a present that I could unwrap was Christmas, was my birthday, was anniversary. And if it wasn't on those days, I can't ever remember a time in my life where I'm like, oh, this is a present to unwrap. So it was a normal Tuesday night and she handed me this present to unwrap. And so I took it and I unwrapped the present and I opened it up and inside there was a onesie in it. And the onesie looked something like this. I think we have an example uh, on the screen. And it had Yoda on it and it was like, too cute I am. And so I was like, this is a little small for me. Like, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do with this. What's supposed to happen? And, and I, then I looked at it for a moment, and I looked for another moment, and I was like, oh, this is the moment where I learn that Sarah is pregnant, and I'm going to be a dad, and we're going to have our first baby. And so it was like equal parts excitement and fear and all the feelings of like, oh, wow, this is getting real. This is going to be happening Somehow God decided I was responsible enough to become a dad. This is crazy. <laughs> and so cut to nine months later, we're uh, in the hospital. It was like a delivery room, like all the doctors are there. And there's nothing like being a dad in the delivery room feels like a backup quarterback on a Super Bowl team. It's like everyone has a job but you. I was just standing there like not sure what to do. And I was like, hey, are you breathing? Are you remember to breathe? Like that was my job, like make sure she's breathing. And I was like, okay, are you breathing like there? And uh, it was so intense in that moment of like trying to manage it all, make sure it was all okay. And at one moment she was like, how did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? And I was like, because I love you. And so uh, <laughs> next thing we knew uh, at that moment, I remember like, I wasn't sure what to do or whatever else, but I was like, this is the time where I'm gonna step up and really be there and really be present. And I remember in that moment in the delivery room just saying like, you know what? I have a small kind of meager job. The doctors have a job. My wife's the one giving birth, but I'm going to stand by her and be there in every moment that I can and every moment for this baby. And it was truly incredible. We had the baby. Our first uh, daughter was born. Her name was Juliana. She's sitting right up there. Everyone say hi, Juliana. And so she was there, and I remember like all of a sudden they went, and then they're getting ready to check us out from the hospital. And so they go, and right before they check us out, they give us a class on like how to swaddle our baby, like how to properly swaddle the baby. So like you do a little like taco wrap and then you took it around and then boom, baby swaddled. And they're like, all right, you're ready to be a parent. And I was like, caca, what? <laughs> I was like, that's it? That's all you're gonna teach me is how to wrap my baby like a taco? Like that's the lesson that I get in parenting? And you're gonna send me out into the world with this child, with this baby? Have you met me? What is going on? <laughs> And so I felt totally overwhelmed by that. But then I was like, okay. And so I remember that first car ride home was like the slowest ride of my life. I was there like white knuckling behind that wheel. And it was like, everyone's going fast. And I was like, there's a baby in the car. <laughs> Crazy drivers. <laughs> Must be from Texas. <laughs> and so I was in Colorado then. And so we kind of drove very slowly, like very safely back home. And then it was there, and you know, we did it. There were sleepless nights, but we were like, parents, it was incredible. And then Sarah, at the time, she was in grad school, and so she had been doing this program for three straight summers going to Paris. And so on the third summer there, she was supposed to go to Paris for the summer, and for, you know, she'd truncate it down for just a couple of weeks, but she's gonna go for three, four weeks and leave me alone with the baby, like all by myself. Wow. 
I know, and everyone said, like, you're gonna leave Rob with the baby? <laughs> and she's like, yes, I'm gonna leave Rob with the baby. And I'll never remember holding Juliana, standing there, and Sarah's at the airport, and I give her a kiss goodbye, and I was like, oh man, this is my big moment, this is it. Like, and so I was like, well, I'm babysitting for the next three weeks until you're back, and so you're there. And she's like, Rob, it's not called babysitting. <laughs> and I was like, well, what's it called? And she's like, it's called being a dad. <laughs> I just remember that kind of shotgun blast at that moment of like, wow, once again, responsibility. Like, I meant I'm the last line of defense. And so what I, what I did was um, I went and I found that like, I realized early on that I'm totally unqualified for the job of dad. I felt totally overwhelmed. And so what I did was I actually went and a few years into being a parent, I wrote this book and it's called The Perfect Dad. And the reason why, it's not me, I'm not the perfect dad, but the reason why I wrote this book is because I found 12 mentors. I found a dad who is a principal who kind of taught me like, okay, how do I handle homework? How do I handle like school and lessons, all that sort of stuff? I found a dad who was a cop and I was like, how do I protect my kids? I found a dad who was a lawyer and I said, okay, how do you go and uh, administer punishment? And what is punishment looks like and what's the right way to do it? I found a dad who was a pastor who like had raised his kids up and they like, just like Pastor Ken talked about and they still love Jesus. And I was like, how do I do that with my kids? So I found these 12 jet dads and I made them my board. And I said, okay, if Rob's tenants an organization, you're on my board and I want you to teach me and mentor me how to do this job, how to be this dad. And I thought, if I could master each one of these subjects, or if anyone could, they would be the perfect dad. And so it's an impossible goal, it's not possible, but I think there's something in guys and dads that they wanna bowl for that 300, they wanna like uh, hike the highest mountain, they wanna reach that sort of impossible goal. So that's what, I, that's what stirred up in me in writing this book. And, but I realized this morning that I'm looking out to everyone in this audience and probably 20%, maybe 30% of you are dads, so 70% are not dads. And so what do I have to say about this subject to you uh, who are not dads? I think there's something universal that I learned in this book that I want to talk about this morning. And so uh, what I did was we, we talk a lot about in the church about discipleship, that kind of idea, but what we don't talk about as much, which is kind of really closely tied into it, is mentorship. And that's what I want to talk about today. Scriptures talks all about uh, mentors and what it means. Uh, if, you, if you look at several verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Proverbs 9.9 9 says this, instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. Uh, Phil Philippians 4.9 says this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So what I learned over and over again, uh, reading these verses and thinking about it was, I said, okay, on this journey, what I'm gonna have to do and what it is for a mentor is I'm gonna have to find someone to emulate. I'm gonna find, have to find someone who I'm like, hey, I wanna be like that person. And this is not just for someone who's a father that we're looking to. There are all sorts of people in my life still that I think about who I want to emulate, people who are really good with their finances, Rudy Gates is one of those guys who I talked to and he was a mentor with me with finances and talking about that. Jenny Baker is someone who goes and I see the way that she walks and teaches people. And so I'm like, I wanna emulate that. I wanna learn from that. And I look out at so many faces here and there are different ones of you who I'm like, man, I wanna learn from you because I see something that you're doing so incredible in your life. And I'm like, how did you do that? How do I become to be like that? 
And so I think what we want to do is we want to emulate uh, different people who we see something in and we're, we, we're drawn to. One of the most famous uh, mentorships in scripture is Elijah and Elisha. The J is first and then the S. That's kind of how you know who came first and second. But Elijah was this legend. He was this incredible prophet who had had all these different stories, who'd prayed down fire on a mountain when it seemed impossible, who'd walked with God, who'd delivered incredible prophecies. And so Elisha said, you know what? I want to become like him. I want to be like him. How did he do that? Who is he? And so I think as we're going through and as you're thinking about the subject of mentoring, which is what I did with these 12 different dads who are in my life, I asked myself a couple of questions. And so I think to find a mentor or be a mentor, ask yourself this question. Number one, have I done anything in my life worth emulating? Have I done anything in my life worth emulating? And so seriously, take a moment, think about this question. Have I done anything in my life worth emulating? If the answer is yes, then you should be teaching someone else how to do what you do. Don't wait for someone to come to you. There are different people in your life. There are people in your church. There are people in, if you're like, I don't know, where do I meet a mentor at? Supper for six groups. Like, that's part of the reason that we have these groups is because you can go and you can get to know different people. And you can ask that question of like, wait, I saw how you did this. I saw the way that you've kind of gone further in your career. I see the way that you pray. I see you during worship. I see the way that you manage your finances. I see the way that you are with your kids. I see those different things. How did you do that? How do I become like you? And so you should be looking out for someone and what you should do if you, if you have something in you, I, I'm always looking for this. I'm looking for someone who I see a spark in, someone who I see a little bit of myself in, and I say, that's someone who I can teach and who I can give what God has given me. And so um, uh, if the answer is no, then you should be humble enough to ask someone else to teach you. If the answer is no, you should be humble enough to ask someone to teach you. And I think either way where the goal is, the ultimate goal is in this, is you are pouring yourself out and you are learning from someone else. Pouring someone else out and you're learning from someone else. I spent a couple of years in LA, and if you know anything about me, you know that I love, 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 love movies. And I think LA, Hollywood culture, has a lot of brokenness in it, a lot of things that could be fixed and could be better, a lot of things that are dented. But there's one thing that uh, LA, Hollywood culture gets really, really well, and that is the idea of mentorship. That is the idea of sending the elevator back down for someone else. And you wanna know how I know this? Because I watch the Oscars every single year. And you know what the Oscars happen when the 99% of the time when they get the best picture right? Here's what happens in the Oscars. They go and they, uh, someone goes, they win an award and they give a speech. And every single speech up there, do you know what happens? It's like, hey, I would like to thank this person. I would like to thank that person. I'd like to thank this person. It's a long laundry list of people who they're thanking. It doesn't mean anything to me or you, but to them, they realize I'm standing here, I'm standing on a mountain of people who've poured in me, of people who've invested in me, of people who've given up so much. And so that's what, that's what that picture is. When they're thanking all those people and we don't care, they know I would not be here <coughs> if it wasn't for a lot of people investing in me. And if you look at anyone, if you look at Pastor Ross, if you look at different leaders, if you look at people who are in a place that you want to be, they would not be there without mentors, without different people pouring and investing into their life. Right. Question two that you should learn when it comes to men- mentorship is this. Can I grow in the craft of what I'm learning? Can I grow in the craft of what I'm learning? Open to 2 Timothy 3.10. This is uh, Paul writing a letter, and he's, Paul is mentoring Timothy, and they've talked a lot, and Timothy really uh, 
chronicles a lot of their correspondence, and this is one of my favorite passages. Second uh, Timothy, starting at verse 10. You know, however, uh, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Icoam, Lystria, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And part of it is he's saying, you need that mentorship because you're going to go from uh, deceiving to being deceived. You're going to be persecuted. And so while those people are being deceived, you need people who you can trust. And he really highlights this in verse 14. But as for you, continued in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from your infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so there's this craft that Paul is talking about, this craft that Timothy learns as he's learning to go and be a, uh, be a preacher, go and write letters, go and do incredible things from this church. He has learned this from in, uh, infancy. He has learned this uh, through his whole life. But even as he learned that, even as he's had different failures, um, there's been a mentor that he's had to uh, uh, lean on and rely on. And I realize this so much in my life. Part of the reason that I need a mentor is not because, oh, I'm going to do it right and I'm going to do so great. Part of the biggest reason that I do a mentor is because I'm going to fail and I'm going to fall down. And part of what I'm, the biggest reason what I want in a mentor is because something will go wrong. Uh, something will go wrong. I realized, like, as I was writing this book, one of the uh, chapters that I talked about is the dad is an adventurer. Like, dads love to go, and they love to take their kids on family vacations. They love to go and have big, fun, exciting adventures. And so I'm just like that. And so a uh, mentor of mine, John Bolin, who had these incredible vacations, he's been such a friend of my life, but his family takes these legendary vacations. And he's like, I was like, how do you do this? How do you have these incredible vacations? And he's like, what you're looking to do in vacations is you're looking to make a memory. Like, that's your goal. That's what you're looking to do. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm going to take that. And so I remember going, and Julianne and I and the, uh, the whole family, we were in this small little water park in Walsenburg, and we were there, and there were these two water slides, and one was open face, and two was closed face. And so Julianne and I were riding the water slides like all day long, and it was so fun. But every time she'd go up, she'd go down the, the open face water slide. And so towards the end of the day, I was like, Juliana, you should go down this like tube water slide. And she's like, I don't know, Dad, it looks too fast. And I remember what John had told me. I remember what Ross had told me, different guys. Ross has an incredible story about uh, Zach not wanting to ride a roller coaster. And he's like, you can do it. You can ride this roller coaster. And he's like, no, I can't. And then they go through the roller coaster. And as they get down, they hug. And it's like the best father and son moment ever. High fives, music playing. We did it. And they walk off in the sunset. And I was like, I want that kind of moment. And so I was like, okay, Julian and I are going to have this type of moment. So we go and walk up to the water slide. And I was like, hey, honey, I know you're scared of that tube water slide, but sometimes life is an adventure and you just have to go and push yourself and go further. And so she's like, you think it's safe? And I was like, Juliana, you can trust me. I'm your dad. <laughs> and so she said, okay. <laughs> so she goes and she's she like, I'll never forget. She kind of gets in the water slide and she looks back at me like little scared kid eyes. And then she like flings herself in. And I was like, that's right. That's my girl. She's so brave. And then I'm standing there and I'm looking out the water slide and she doesn't come out. And so I'm like looking at it 
And I'm like, where is she? And so I look at the lifeguard, this like 15-year-old kid, I'm looking at him and I'm like, where's my daughter? And they're like, oh, they get stuck sometimes. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean they get stuck sometimes? They're like, yeah, it happens. <laughs> I was like, man, this is the worst engineer. This is not like Schlitterbahn. This is like a small like mountain water park. And so I was like, they're like, ah, yeah. And so I was like, what do I do? And she's like, well, you should go in there and knock her out. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I go and I like, I'm like, okay, I'm have this like, instead of like hero dad, I'm like, oh, okay, rescue dad moment. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go and rescue her. So I'm wearing my tube, I jump in and I'm like, fling myself in. I'm like, I'm coming for you, baby. <laughs> and so she goes and as I'm like halfway down, all of a sudden I hear these like, blood-curdling screams and cries. I know, it's so sad, this is a true story. Uh, these, these super sad cries. And so I was like, don't worry, Juliana, I'm coming. But you know, the water slide, it just sounds like a drive-through, you know, it's like, bah, 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 bah. You're like, she can't even hear what I'm saying. And so I go, I'm going all the way down, and then smack, I smack right into her, and then like, start pushing her down. And then she comes out the water slide, kind of like this, but her tube hits the front because I smacked her off, and so it flips her over like a pancake. And then I go, she's flipped over like a pancake, I go and land on top of her. <laughs> she gets out of the water, and her face is covered in blood, like I made her nose bleed, and she's like, Dad, I will never trust you again. <laughs> and she walks off. One chapel, I need a mentor. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so literally I went, <laughs> talked to different mentor dads of like, okay, you want to have these adventures, but what do you do when something goes wrong? And the thing is, one chapel, a lot of times we think of like, okay, mentor for when things go right. But what we really knew, I have, I have a lot of other stories that happened in this book of where things went really wrong and I had to call someone because I was like, this is going horribly. What do I do when things go so wrong? And so that's why we need a mentor. And what I'm looking for in a mentor is not someone who's perfect, but someone who's failed and learned from their mistakes and gotten better. And so uh, for me, that's so huge. And so I'll say it exactly like I have it in my message notes. I'm, looking for a, I'm not looking for someone perfect. I'm looking for someone who's failed and overcome a problem. Those are the people we look up to, not the people who have never had a stormy day, whatever else. The people who've failed and gotten back up and kept going, those are the type of mentors that we need in our life. And I think, I think the key to this of what it takes is a certain level of faithfulness, a certain level of you kind of being committed to someone and someone being committed to you and just like, you know what? I'm not gonna fix you all right now. All the dad mentors who talk to me are like, Rob, you're too much of a mess. We can't fix everything right now, but we're gonna go and walk day by day slowly with you. So as you do that, you'll grow and get better. Second Kings, uh, starting at uh, verse five, talks about it like this. Um, the company of prophets at Jericho, went up to Elijah and asked him, do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. You can tell this is bothering him, that he's, he's really close to him. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided the right and left, and the two crossed over the dry ground. That's such a cool moment. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, 
Can you tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit the double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And so I love what Elisha says here is he's like, I want more. I want the double portion. I want, I don't want just what you have. I want to be like you and I want to be better. I want to go further. I want to go faster. And for me as a dad, that's what I want for my kids. I want them to go better and faster. I've mentored a lot of writers. And so I'm like, I want you to go further than I've ever gone before. When you're mentoring someone, that's what you want. You want for them to have the double portion. You want for them to do more than you could have ever done before. And so, and I think uh, the reason all this happens is because a mentor is going to go and a mentor is going to teach you, number three, a mentor will teach you how to be a hero. A mentor will teach you how to be a hero. And uh, I, think, I think this word superheroes and that sort of thing, there's a lot of funky definition of hero in our culture. So I'm going to give you a Rob Stennett definition of hero, which I think is really important to the talk this morning. A hero is someone who consistently makes selfless decisions in the face of dangers and hardships consistently makes selfless decisions. I think that's so important. Uh, as we talk about the subject of dads, I even know this, is a, this can be a sore subject for some of you in the room. I, w- I was in youth ministry for years and years and years, and uh, I would go and we would, uh, with actually Brent Parsley and John Egan and I, we did tag together and we'd do different ministry moments, different altar calls, and what jumps out to me is when we do an altar call and say, hey, if you just need prayer about your relationship with your dad or something with your dad, come on up here. And that was the moment. We, we could do altar calls about all sorts of different things. It could be, you know, addictions or drugs or hurts or whatever else, uh, identity. But when we would say, hey, we're going to do an altar call about your dad, it was amazing. These high school students would flood to the front of the room and say, I need prayer because my relationship with my dad is not right. I need prayer for that, Pastor Rob. And I'd pray with these different students. And what I realized is like even, even earlier in, in birth, like that story I was telling you, it's easy for a dad can, to kind of step back. It's easy for dads to be distant. And so I think the charge that I wanted to give for my own life and what I wanted to encourage to different dads is to be there and to be selfless. And for those of you without a dad or those of you without a dad figure, that's the reason why this mentoring is so important is because some of you are here today, like I didn't have that mentors that you're talking about. I didn't have those people that you're talking about. And so, but that's the reason I believe the church body is so strong is because we can mentor each other. Different ones, I'm looking at different dads in the room, different strong moms in the room, different strong singles in the room who I know who have so much to offer and give. And so I I think when I talk about mentor will teach you how to be a hero, it's funny. When I wrote this book, I wrote kind of outlined the 12 jobs of dad. And hero was the last one. And I said, you know what? I'm going to have kind of this idea of hero that I'm going to talk about and just kind of like, because I know like in my life, I've been around long enough to know, you know what, there's a trial ahead of me that I don't know about, but it's, it's coming, it's life. Like life is hard, life is difficult. And no matter what is today, there are trials and hardships ahead. So I, I signed a contract to write this book. I started working on it and just knew that there was gonna be a trial ahead. Well, I, literally as I was finishing up the book, we were there and our fourth baby, uh, right before she was born, I went in for a checkup. And I went, it was just kind of like normal checkup. I was in my 30s, so check the blood, blood pressure, check different things, check that. And then he kind of said, like, had me, like, checked in my mouth, shined a flashlight in there, and he's like, what's that in the top of your mouth? And I was like, I don't know. I think it's like a cyst or something. I've started feeling it re- recently. So I'm like, I don't know what it is. And so he's like, oh, you should go to, like, an ENT and just get it checked out or whatever else. So I was like, okay, great. So I remember going, kind of signing up for the ENT appointment to get it checked out. And then I go, and then he kind of, like, 
looks and has his instrument equipment, that sort of stuff, and the, the ENT doctor's there, and he's like, oh, I think that's a tumor. And I remember just like, I was in my 30s, I was like, tumor, like, how do you say that word about me? How do you say that word about Rob? I was like, I was like, tumors, that's for other people. And I think every person who's ever got a tumor probably feels like that. It's like, oh, that's, that's something that happens to someone else. And so I remember sitting there in that moment, and I was just totally shocked. And he was like, okay, well, we're going to have a biopsy, and we're going to see uh, if it's cancerous or not. And uh, we'll get back to you. It takes a couple of weeks, and we'll let you know. And I remember between that doctor's appointment and my next doctor's appointment, Emma Jane was born, my fourth daughter. And so I was there in the hospital, and I remember holding her in the hospital, and I was thinking, uh, do I have cancer? Is this it? Am I ever going to see her uh, walk on her graduation? Am I going to be there walking her down the aisle on the wedding day? Or will that be someone else because I don't make it that long? And I remember seeing that and thinking that in the, that moment and dealing with that fear. I went, the, it came back, and it was not cancerous, praise God, but he's like, we still have to have it removed. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm over it. I think I'm over the hump. I think we're good. So they did, uh, they took it out. It was a benign tumor in the top of my mouth, took it out, removed it. And then he's like, okay, it should close up and everything should be good to go. And so I was like, okay, great. Next thing I know, a couple of weeks later, uh, it goes and it doesn't close up at all. And it actually gets infected and so they have to take more skin out. Sorry, that's really graphic, but this is what happened. <laughs> and so they have to take more out. And then all of a sudden, next thing no, no is I was like, I, when he did that and everything fell out, like I'm talking like this right now, all of a sudden, literally the top of my mouth was gone. So I talked like this, like I talked like really, yeah, it was, it was awkward. And so <laughs> I was talking like that and I was like, I was like, oh my gosh. And so he was like, when's it gonna be? And he's like, we don't know, it could be six months, could be a year, could be longer, we're not sure when this is gonna close. And I just remember thinking like, I was directing the Christmas show. We had a big Christmas show when I lived at New Life and so, or when I worked at New Life. And so we had that show and I was having to direct it and I couldn't even talk out of the microphone. Like I sounded like, uh, like something, and everyone thought, oh, he's joking around. Like it's Rob being funny. And I was like, it was such a like vulnerable, weird moment of like, no, this is real. Like this is happening to me. I don't do it. And so all of a sudden I went and I was like, I kind of like dropped out of the Christmas show and was like, I can't direct this. Have you ever laughed really hard and milk like comes out your nose? Ever had that happen? Laugh hard and milk comes out your nose? This would happen to me every time I ate or drank anything. It would come out my nose. And so I know it's horrible. And so it would, it would, it would come out my nose. And I was like, I, all I could eat was like soup broth. And so I remember it being Christmas Eve and we'd had a bunch of other events and that sort of thing. And I remember it being not Christmas Eve, but it was a few days before Christmas, and we were sitting at a hamburger place, and everyone was eating hamburgers and milkshakes, and I was like, man, everyone in this restaurant can drink a milkshake, and it will not come out their nose. <laughs> but I was like, I'm not. I'm broken. There's just nothing to me, and I got so depressed. I've got, I felt defeated. I felt hopeless. I was like, I wrote this book. I was like, I'm garbage. I'm not the perfect dad. I'm a mess. And I just remember being so defeated by this after thing, after thing, after thing, after thing. And I was like, I can't do this much longer. I can't keep going. And I remember in that moment just kind of like wanting to ask for prayer. But to be honest, I wasn't even nervous to ask for prayer because I was like, what if I pray and nothing happens? What if I pray and God doesn't do anything to me? I was, I was, too, I was too nervous. I didn't even know what it would do to my faith. And so I just shelled up. I shelled up. I shelled up. I took it all in. And finally, I remember praying one time and thinking, and thinking about, okay, God, what do I do in this situation? 
And I remember thinking like, you know what? Being perfect isn't about getting it all right. It's about doing it all the way there. Being perfect is about no matter what you face, no matter what you're looking at, not giving up, continuing to go, continue to walk, continue on in Jesus. And so that's kind of what I want to say to you today, One Chapel, is I don't know where you are in your journey, but there's two types of people that I want to talk to this morning. One, I want to talk to dads who feel overwhelmed, who feel like, man, I don't know if I can keep stepping out. I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know if I can keep walking. And I want to say, being perfect isn't like getting it all right, like, oh man, I wish I could have all those marbles back because I messed up. Being perfect is starting the day and saying, you know what? I'm going to give it my all today. I'm going to give everything I have to my family. I'm going to give everything I have. The second person I want to talk to is the person who's been listening to this message, and they're thinking, I have nothing worth emulating. There's nothing good about me. There's nothing worth copying. No one would ever want to learn from me. And I want, this is like just a meeting between me and whoever's thinking of that right now. I want to look you in the eye and say, that is not true. God has created you. There's something incredible and special inside you that God wants to unearth and do something in you. So don't you dare for a second think, I'm not worth emulating. I shouldn't learn from anyone. I shouldn't do anything else because there's nothing to me because that's just not the truth. I want to go ahead and invite the band to come on up. They might be out in the hallway. Uh, I want to invite the band to come up. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a time right now of communion together as a church. And so what I want to do is as we're uh, gathering as a church, this is a time where we can go and we can uh, just reflect on the different things. And I think uh, as we take communion together, I'd love for you to pray, God, what are you doing in me? Who do you want me to learn from? And who do you want me to invest in one another? How can I walk besides others to give and to live this life not alone, but to teach others what you've given me? And so we're going to pray. And after I say amen, the ushers are going to kind of take you through communion. We practice open communion at one chapel, which means if you're uncomfortable for any reason, you don't have to go through the line, but, or you don't have to take communion. But if you would, everyone stand up and go through the line and take communion together. So I'm going to pray, say amen, and then we'll take communion together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for everyone here today. I thank you for this incredible Sunday morning, Lord. I thank you for your word and the truth in your scriptures, Lord. The way that Paul talked to Timothy, Lord, let us have those relationships in life, Lord. And if we feel too broken, if we feel too empty, Lord, I pray that first and foremost, we would lean on you, Lord, that you'd be that voice in our life, Lord, to guide us, to protect us, to give us strength and to give us courage, Lord. I pray for you, Lord. I pray for you and your spirit be upon all of us. We love you, Jesus, and remember what you did for us today. In your holy name, amen.